On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses going for the one. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands, album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined as usual by my very good friends Ken Gregory and Paul Zotter as we discuss the Yes album, Going for the One. This is actually a redo of the conversation we originally had on Going for the One because we had some technical difficulties that time, that first time. We hope you enjoy this one, and we look forward to sharing some more with you. All right. Um, we will talk about Yes's Going for the One. Was released in 1977. I guess that was uh, three years after Relayer. Is that correct? It was released on Atlantic. Had a return of Rick Wakeman to the lineup. So the lineup consisted of John Anderson, Chris Squire, Steve Howe, Rick Wakeman, and Alan White. The track listing was Going for the One, Turn of the Century, Parallels, Wondrous Stories, and Awaken. Mm. And the blurb says, Going for the One is the eighth studio album by the English rock band Yes, released on 15 July 1977 by Atlantic Records. The album was recorded in Montreux, Switzerland, after the band took a break in activity for each member to release a solo album and their 1976 North American tour. It marks the departure of keyboardist Patrick Moraz and the return of Rick Wakeman, who had left to pursue his solo career after musical differences surrounding tales from topographic oceans. In a departure from their previous three albums, Going for the One features shorter and more direct songs written without a unifying theme or concept, and saw Yes record with new producers, engineers, and cover designers. Going for the One received a mostly positive response from music critics who welcomed the band's return to more accessible music like their earlier albums, The Yes Album and Fragile. It was a commercial success and reached number one in the UK Albums Chart, their second album to do so, for two weeks and peaked at number eight in the US Billboard 200. Wonder Stories and Going for the One were released as singles. The former went to number seven in the UK, which remains the band's highest charting single. Going for the One was certified gold by the Recording Industry Association of America for 500,000 copies sold in the US. A remastered edition was released in 2003 that contains several previously unreleased tracks from the album's recording sessions. Yes, supported the album with a six-month tour of North America and Europe. So there are the particulars. Well done, Joe. Oh, thank you. I can read words. It's it uh, almost it's, it's almost like you've done that before. It's almost like I've done it before. <laughs> well, I so, for one appreciate the introductions, regardless of uh, uh, you know how stale they could sound. I, I, they're fantastic. So thank you, Joe. And um, uh, and Paul, 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 you were going to chime in. Um. So. So there's so it's kind of funny because 
I from the last time we did this, the last time we talked about going for the one, <laughs> and then and and failed to record the audio. Uh, <laughs> it was so. It was it was such a great conversation that I I became almost even more obsessed with going for the one after we we talked about it than I was beforehand. Wow. At least I think maybe I maybe all of what I'm about to describe was actually happened before, and I just can't remember. Um, but there are some YouTube videos out there that document the whole entire process of them recording is there going for the one and we talked about how they went to Montreux and they whatever studio they were supposed to go to I guess Emerson Lake and Palmer were still working finishing up tracking or whatever and so they had they ended up for two months somewhere else they ended up rehearsing uh, all of the songs and um and and so I feel like there there was this different process we've talked about before, where like when when one only one particular band member kind of takes over, um, takes over the uh, the reins, the the quality of the music fails. But when everyone is kind of together, working and writing and and determining the, the direction of the song, it seems to work so much better. But what the video really gave insight to is I had this sort of. After reading about this, I had this fantasy that they rehearsed for a couple weeks, every or a couple months. Everybody was like super great, and they all showed up. And Rick Wakeman drove down the street to the church to play the organ, and they all like got together and played, you know, just started recording all, all of the tracks live and everything. And when you watch the rehearsal bits and you watch the different recording segments, you realize that that it, it it's it's even more magical because they were screwing around with stuff and they were experimenting and they were, you know, overdubbing and they were doing all the stuff. There's a great, great scene of Steve Howe tracking the, uh, the guitar parts at the end of turn of the century with a classical guitar. And he's, he's, he's trying to figure out the best way to play it. And I just, I was just blown away by that for some reason, like here, like I just listened to the end of that song and it's just so beautiful and you just always think oh he picked up a 12 string and he and he did it and it just sounds so beautiful and and yet he's like playing different fingerings different you know doing it with a pick doing it without a pick trying to figure out how it's going to sound the best and uh some of their all standing around the microphones with all the percussion that they're shaking and smacking during awake and everything it's just really really cool video that uh that just put gives some insight to the way the band recorded it, and for some reason, for me, it really made the whole listening to the final product again after all of this discussion even more interesting. And I appreciated it so much better for for the amount of effort that they put through to get it so good in the end. Hmm. My goodness, that's brilliant. Uh, uh, Joe, true to uh, progressive believer form, uh, do, do, do you want to start your part by your exposure to uh, going for the one? Okay. <laughs> that does seem to be a recurring theme, doesn't it? The formula. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, sure. So, um, so going for the one, you know, it, it, you know, again, as as I was discovering, yes, and and good music, um, in my late teens, going for the one, you know, I knew of its existence simply because Wonder Stories was the, you know, the the one sort of late model song that was on Classic Yes. So. My oldest brother had classic yes, and um, you know, as we started getting into it, that was sort of like, okay, I'll start here, and you know, it had all the normal stuff from from Fragile and uh, the Yes album, and and it had Wonder Stories, which obviously sort of you know stuck out, and it's like, oh, going for the one. There's there's something we can get into, and. Um, so, you know, when when you're in that sort of discovery phase and you, you know, back then, it wasn't as easy to get your hands on everything at once. And so you sort of had to, to sort of pick and choose how you were going to approach it. Um, same thing happened with, with Marillion. But at some point, obviously, going for the one got on my radar and, it, it you know, it needed to be obtained. And um, so I remember when I got it, and you put it on, and you hear going for the one. Now, at the time, you know, we were at some stage in our, our little heavy metal phase. And so it was just, it was a revelation for me at the time, hearing going for the one. And it's like, oh, hey, look, yes, it's rocking out. This is, this is pretty awesome. And... Um, you know, sadly, though, um, I, I didn't get a lot of that album at first. Um, certainly, you know, like I said, I, I knew Wonder Stories and that was fine. Um, going for the One was sort of like an immediate hook and it's like, okay, yeah, yes, it's rocking out. I get it. Um, Turn of the Century, I, I certainly didn't understand Parallels, very cool, um, pretty straightforward. Um, what am I missing here? No, that's it. Wonder Stories and then Awaken. And I can tell you that I did not get Awaken until, really until the Union Tour. Um, you know, that was, that was, Awaken was sort of the, the showpiece on that tour. And I remember... You know, John Anderson making a big deal about it um, in the interviews that we had seen at the time. And I want to say he probably made a big deal about it in the actual concert. And, you know, he was he was so excited by it. I'm like, I really need to pay attention to this. And at that point, you know, I had gone far enough in my journey that I you know, I could start to make some sense of these long-form songs. And so I, I went to the Union show and saw it, and I was like, hey, yeah. And then I could go back and listen to Awaken, and it was just, oh, I get it. I totally get it. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was it was a whole big production. That was the whole, that was the tour where, you know, Squire got the, the three-necked thing um, for playing yeah. that which was put somewhere. So actually, prepping for this tonight, I went, or I didn't win, I was in my uh, my living room, I watched 
awakened on Union Live because I wanted to get I wanted to get a feel for how they approached it live and sort of maybe recreate my introduction to it and it was it was actually really cool because I was able to figure out what that three neck monstrosity that uh, Squire plays is it's pretty straightforward the bottom neck is a fretless middle neck is a normal fretted bass and the top neck is some six-string six bastardized thing. It's I, I've never seen a baritone guitar, so I don't know if that's what it is. Um, if you look at it, it clearly has a shorter neck scale than a normal bass, um, but it, it clearly has, you know, three sets of two strings, a la you know, you know, like an eight an eight-string bass or something like that. Only there's three. So I don't know exactly what that is, but that's that's how it works. And Squire basically plays the fretless in the first part, the fretted bass in the middle, and then the top thing, whatever it is, at the end of the song. So I thought that was kind of, you know, cool to finally pay attention to how that whole thing works. But, uh, yeah, so that was, that was how I got into the whole thing. And... Um, you know, I've had, and, and I imagine we'll get back into Awaken, you know, at the end of this whole thing. But I've seen, I've seen many different versions of Yes Now perform Awaken. I saw the Union version. I saw, I believe it was the How Squire White Downs and... David version perform it. I've seen them perform it with John Davison. Um, and I've seen wow. ARW. How was that? How was that performance? And, and that's the amazing thing. Every time I've seen yet um, Awaken performed, it translates wonderfully. It really, really does. I, I can't, you know, and you know how it is when you're, you're sort of in the moment in a, in a show and you think it's fantastic, and you hear like a recording later on, and you're like, "Holy crap, that was awful!" But mm. I've never, I've never had a bad experience listening to Awaken, regardless of of who's actually performing it. It, it always just seems to translate extraordinarily well. Mm. Wow. Mm. I, that's um. I don't know why I find that unexpected, but I've never seen John Davison perform live, so maybe I wouldn't after I did. I'm looking at a picture of the Chris Squire three-necked monstrosity, and uh, I'll save it and put it in the, uh, the episode notes. But the uh, it looks like that top thing, it looks like a regular guitar uh, headstock but the strings definitely, it almost looks like it's a, it's the, it's three of the bass strings with octaves. So it's almost like a six string bass. Yeah. And I'm sure he's just using it for the, that one part, the slow part where he just has that droning, um, um, that sort of droning doom, 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 doom. Um, he could yeah. just be playing uh, three open strings. Um, but really, uh, it looks pretty. It looks pretty badass, though, nonetheless. 
Yeah, that was that was an interesting thing, and and I'm sure we'll get into this when we talk about union whenever around we is to get around to that. But it was fascinating for me watching the interplay on that. And like I said, Squire start plays the first part on the fretless, and then the middle part on the fretted bass. How opened up playing of all things a Steinberger, which just weirds me oh. out when Al plays a Steinberger. Really? Although he fin he finished up playing his Telecaster. So you know, you tell me. Well, he played the Steinberger for uh, many years, many years. I just, I never, I would have never thought of it, you know, with a week. That was his go-to in the um, ABWH uh, yeah. years. So, and that was part of that, so. There you go. And, you know, I, I just have to laugh at, you know, this has nothing to do with going for the one, and we're getting totally off track here because we've already talked about it. But I just watched it, and it just, it's cracking me up. So you've got eight guys on stage on this union tour, right? And everyone has, you know, their their get up. And then there's Trevor walking around in just a wife beater. <laughs> Trevor, did did someone tell you they were recording this on video tonight? You know, <laughs> it's a different time. It was a different time. It just so cracked it was, it was me more up. Socially acceptable but, then. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right. So one of the things that we did, we had talked about previously, and I think it's worth mentioning again. You know, we had, we had, as we've we've sort of worked up to this. Um, it's it's been. I don't want to say an arduous road, but it's been it's been a bit of a. a there hasn't been consensus on the previous albums that we've had to consider, Tales and Relayer. And there were some, some things going on. Obviously, Wakeman had left the band. Um, you know, there's, there seems to be conflicting stories on the internet as to the exact timing and nature of Patrick Mraz's departure during this, this time period. And... And... And it's amazing how, given all of that, and uh, is it fair to say that, you know, Tales and, and Relayer had become, you know, the, the music had become bloated? And, and have, you know, they all go away and do their solo thing. They come back together. They fire Patrick. And then they bring in Rick as a studio musician, according to the Tales. And... And in a self-produced environment, they come up with something that is just unexpected, I think, is, is probably a good way to say it. And, you know, I don't know if that was the fact that they had, you know, time to do their own thing and they had all relaxed a little bit. I don't know if they had matured in the, in the few years since then. Um, yeah, I don't know exactly what it is, but you know, if if you sort of had plotted out the the trajectory of yes prior to this, I don't know that you would have landed on going for the one in 1977. And it's it's remarkable to me how that album sort of showed up. Um, 
even more so given what comes after. But, you know, let's just enjoy the moment right now of going for the one. And like I said, it's just, I find it remarkable how fresh this album sounds, how, you know, viable it sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, when we previously discussed going for the one, um, I recall that the title track was very lukewarm to both you, Joe, and Paul. Um, you didn't commit to it. And, and I retorted that, you know, I found it to be uh, more of a pop song and I liked the energy and I, I, I was rooting for the title track. A great fit. Have you thought any more about um, going for the one, just as as the the opening tune? I find going for the one just like noisy and overwrought with screeching vocals, which I rarely ever say about yes. Right. But all the screaming and yelling at the end just really just literally makes me turn the, the volume down. So I almost never listen to that. I think the first time I listened to Going for the One for this episode, I listened to the song Going for the One, and then after that one time, I just I started Turn of the Century. And we picked up on the term country crazy, uh, particularly when, when Steve Howe was doing Slide and a lot of the bendy yeah. Americana riffs. I'm curious, you know, if if they had produced it better and avoided those timbres that are kind of revolting at the end, do you think just the, the nature of the composition would, would hold yeah. it? Yeah, I mean, you know, so I I, uh, I think the term is cowboy crazy. Um, <laughs> cowboy crazy. <laughs> that, we stole, that we stole from Bill Bruford. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, I think you're right. Yeah. So, I mean, this is this is after, you know, decades of listening to this album, you know, starting back in high school. And I remember in college playing on my radio show, playing the track going for the one several times. So, I mean, there, there was definitely a time when I appreciated the song. And I think it's just in my old fartedness. <laughs> that I I don't have the patience or, you know, the now Steve Howe's, uh, like, outrageous tone through that whole song just just somehow now resonates. Maybe it's because I lost so much hair. Uh, it bounces around my skull more than it did before. <laughs> and so, so, uh, so, yeah, I'm with you, Ken. I could definitely appreciate the composition. I just, overall, for me, it's just it's just not a... Not not something that I enjoy as much as the rest of the stuff on on going for the one. Uh, Joe, do you buy into the cowboy track there? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's you know it's it's obvious when you hear it, and I you know I think the first the last time we talked about this, um, you know, and and I was I was watching some of the Yes Years video this weekend as well, and you know. Bill Bruford goes into great length about how cowboy crazy they all were. And, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's clearly there. It's clearly something that, that Steve likes to do. 
you know, the one thing I will give going for the one and what what really makes it so remarkable is that again, given given the fact that the last yes album you had had was Relayer, it's so unpretentious and just fun. <laughs> Whether you like it or not. And that that's why it was so unexpected. And, you know, to open up the album like that, you know, it, it I can only imagine having been, you know, a Yes fan at the time. And it's like, oh, the new Yes album's out. And you go home and you throw it on your turntable and you're like, what the fuck? Yeah, yeah. now they're just but, partying. It's like, we're not really sure where the uh, prog rock band went. We, we, we have some rock and rollers here. Uh, yeah. We talked about the uh, going for the one the turn of the century transition. Uh, anybody <laughs> want to rehash that? Um, well, it's great for me because I just start with turn of the century. So this transition's <laughs> perfect. Yeah. Um, but, I, but you know, I, I just want to add one thing because we, we've kind of danced around it. And I, I took this down in some of my notes. And I don't this I think this was just from Wikipedia because that seems to be where I get everything. But um, it was an interesting perspective from uh a Los Angeles Times review credited to Steve Pond, who suggested that the band, in their own way, lowered their standards instead of raising them. So, so right, like like you said, Joe, Relayer and Tales for the Topographic Oceans were the two preceding albums. How do you outdo those from a progressive rock standpoint? And they really didn't. They, in a, in a sense, they said, okay, we're not going to try to top these masterful works. We are going to just go as much as we can in yes way, go back to basics, right? And so by actually lowering their sights, they, uh, they've actually put together, he wrote, the most appealing collection since Close to the Edge, which I would agree. I would agree for sure. Well, that's not much of a stretch to really say. I mean, come on. But it's the reasoning. It's the it's the reasoning behind it. They went back to basics with this, uh, and I think part of it has to do with, you know, the fact that they all took a break and recorded solo albums, and Rick Wakeman came back into the fold, and they were all, you know, you know, he wasn't frustrated with the with the long winded songs, and it it all seemed to kind of work together, and they really worked. Like the the demo on the, I think I mentioned this last time. The I never listened to the uh, the deluxe remastered versions of any of these albums. I always go back just to the regular one. But the 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 deluxe remastered version with all of the excess tracks for going to the one, going for the one. Sorry, has all these great things, including demo versions of like Turn of the Century, which is totally different. Like it doesn't even sound like the regular. A regular song and a, a demo of some of the stuff happening on uh, Awaken, which is really cool. Um, but they, you, you can hear that they really worked through these songs and sliced and diced them and tried to figure out exactly, you know, how to work work through them and, and really present the best possible version of the song. Um, and I think it's all tied together. Well, and, and you know that's. And maybe this is part of it here, because, again, when I was watching the Yes Years video and they have, you know, these interviews of of the, the five of them and they're talking about, you know, 
the earlier albums, the Yes album, Fragile and Close to the Edge, and and the fact that there there are, there are a couple sort of common themes there, and one doesn't hold true, I think, at this point. But but they didn't. No one told them that they couldn't do anything. You know, they were they were young and didn't realize that you couldn't have you know jazz drums and country guitars, so they did it anyway. Um, but the other thing is. You know, all of these, and and Squire had a great quote. He was, to paraphrase, he said, "You know, we were we were putting together these these songs, and everyone had an idea, and everyone's idea sort of got incorporated, so the songs kind of grew. And and when they were doing that, is when they were successful. So going back to what you talked about earlier, Paul, you know, with with tales, obviously." Um, you know, John and, and Steve had a very clear vision of what they wanted. And it was like, you know, it, it, it sounds to me like they came to the band and said, this is what we're going to do. Rick, I need you to do this. You know, Chris, I need you to do this or whatever. Um, you know, and, and there's the famous, you know, we talked about it in the last episode of John bringing in, you know, Gates of Delirium pounding out the whole thing for half an hour on the, on the piano or whatnot, and, you know, kind of turning around and going, well, and, and so in, in, yes, yeah, except that worked, that worked. <laughs> that, sorry. Well, but, but the point is, while it may have worked for that song, you know, look at the rest of the, of the album, you know, That's and, true. and, and, and it, it probably created, you know, more constraints than this group seems to work best with. So if, in fact, they all came back together with sort of this, you know, renewed idea of, you know, taking input from the group and reworking things and sort of piecing together as they went along, you know, maybe that's, I don't know, maybe that's what got them going for the one. Hmm. Yeah. Well, so Ken, I don't know that the transition right uh, um, you know, go uh, into that. When I take what Joe said, you know, regarding the alienation of Bill Bruford during the close to the edge recording sessions, and I factor in the Rick Wakeman alienation following tales from topographic oceans. And I circle back to the triumvirate of Anderson, Squire, Howe. The three gentlemen at some point must have come to a realization that their creations were a bit too complex. So I think that could explain the kind of aloof rock and roll that we get on Going for the One. This mm -hmm. surprise where the title track is just unexpected and loose and hillbilly and crazy all at the same time. That seems to be the, the chemistry that made going for the one happen. It, it, you know, does that ring with you guys? Yeah. Um, I think so. You know, and, uh, uh, you know, another part of that may just, you know, it may just be that they realized, certainly with with Rick, that 
you know, hey, whatever else happened, I like this guy. I mean, we've all had, you know, those those moments where you get snitty with someone, you know, and you you don't talk to them for however long. And um, and then you kind of get over yourself and you sort of, you know, mend the 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 fence, as it were. And you're like, yeah, OK, this is good. And, you know, maybe maybe going for the one is just a reflection of them having a good time. I don't know. I yeah. made I had made. I'd made the uh, the hypothesis in the first time we did this that some of that may have come from Rick being a, a session musician in this. He wasn't he wasn't necessarily you know fully involved in you know whatever else, and you know maybe that was a a vehicle to allow him to sort of get back in without feeling confined or whatnot. I don't know. Um, clearly, whatever magic yeah. they had here didn't last. But so that, you know, Yeah, a lot of that, you know, points to, you know, I think we're touching all along the, these ideas of uh, maturing, you know, kind of coming to terms with, you know, themselves, uh, whatever, whatever. But I think the, the thing that I think that I sort of disagree with that original description that uh, you are reading, Joe, whereas it talks about going for the one not being about any one particular thing. Um, I feel like, you know, they, they were in a certain place. They took a little bit of a break. They all each went and did, you know, both or um, Anderson Squire and Howe went and did their own, uh, solo albums. Wakeman had already done a solo album, and and then they all come back. And I, you know, I feel like in songs like Turn of the Century and Wanderous Stories, and certainly Awaken, there is to me a sort of this emotional theme of of transformation, rediscovery, um, and just the inspiration of creativity starting all over again. And I feel like that is present in several of the tracks. And I think it's, it's in, in very, in very uh, simple terms, new, a new beginning, which is, which to me is sort of the, 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 the thing I like the most about this, this album is that at listening to it as a 47 year old man and being in that portion of my life, it, and I think I made the comment about this last time, right? It's, it's, you know, there's always an opportunity to rediscover yourself, rediscover your passion, rediscover your creativity. Ken, I know you sold your base, all of your bases, but I know in my heart someday you'll have another base, right? Sure. Um, and it's, it is, I and I and I think I actually, you know, po posted this this line right after we finished our last uh, recording from Awaken, workings of man sets a play out historical life, re-regraining the flower of the fruit of his tree, all awakening, all restoring you. I mean, it to me, it's it's that rediscovery and the, the, the finding of the inspiration to, to continue on creatively that is the is the consistent theme in in going for the one. And I think it it's magnified by the fact that there was this sort of time away and then a a regrouping and you know 
water under the bridge, so to say, and moving on. You know, that that's fascinating, Paul, when you put it that way, because looking at the set list, you know, we have five tracks. You singled out, the and clearly, the, the three that you singled out, Turn of the Century, Wondrous Stories, and Awaken, kind of sit at a different level than going for the one in Parallels. Um, as much fun as Parallels is, simply because of the whole organ thing, and we have to sort of revisit that again. But what's different there between those two groups of songs is going for the one in Parallels were leftover tracks from other projects that were brought in mm. and presumably then Turn of the Century, Wonder Stories, and Awaken were written in this this environment of renewal that we can perhaps assume was going on. And so maybe maybe that's what what's driving that. Mm. Wow. I had never thought about that in that in that way. I, I hadn't either until you were talking and I'm looking at this, I'm going, Oh shit, we're onto something here. And I got to say shit, so we just earned our explicit rating, which I There you go. And I don't think we've cursed yet, so um, there may be okay. one in it. Well, it's, it's good that we've got that out of the way now. Yeah, I'm pretty pretty sure you, you, you dropped something in episode six, but that's neither here nor there. Oh, sure. Well, we've definitely, I think we've already earned our explicit already with our um, episodes. Um, <laughs> I don't know what you think of this, but but um, I will never be able to listen to some of this stuff again the same way after our discussions. And, and, and after our last talk about going for the one, the other fun thing about this record is that there are a couple of examples where Songs can be used as jingles for beer commercials. Um, <laughs> like this little tidbit that Ken pointed out from Wonder Stories. <laughs> it's refreshing, man. I just want to say. I just, I just need a sip. It's so refreshing. I hear every time I hear that now, I just I giggle at the end of the song. It's terrific. <laughs> well, I mean, reading the wikis, you see that this was, uh, you know, according to how very much an Anderson piece, how pulled out the Portuguese guitar from all good people played it straight through. Uh, the only characteristic chops that I hear, you know, Wakeman, I, I do hear that Wakeman flavor. Yeah. Uh, but everything just kind of blends in. It could almost be an Anderson solo piece. Mm. What's yeah? And I remember talking about that the the beautiful acoustic guitar, which is which is the or the uh, um, Portuguese guitar. And like I remember talking about, like Rick Wakeman is like just bedazzling you with notes and notes and notes. But it really is seamless. Like it doesn't really sound like he's trying to melt your face off it's just it's very complimentary to how everything is going and it's you delightful know, and, and I, yeah and and you know i had i i think maybe i had brought that up myself in that you know when when you first listen to wonder stories it seems you know serene and and whatnot and then at some point, you kind of realize that, yeah, Rick Wakeman is just fucking flailing. 
and yeah. it's amazing. So one of the things, and and it's I was I wanted to bring this up anyway because I've I've had Rick Wakeman on the brain all weekend. Um, one of the things that I stumbled across, and I don't know if if one of you guys had mentioned this before, I I, I want to say that you have. But there's there's a YouTube video, a documentary hosted by Rick on Roger Dean. Have either of you guys hmm. seen this? No. No. It is fascinating. Not only because Roger Dean is fascinating, um, and Rick Wakeman as sort of a a documentary host is very very funny. But in the first part of of the documentary, there are there there the the music set, it has to be Rick interpreting yes music, and it is phenomenal. I mean, I was just, I was just I was I wasn't even looking at at the images. I was just like, what is that? I need to hear that. It was spectacular. Hmm. And then, so that got, you know, Rick in my brain, and I was listening to Union Live, and I went and I watched two, I watched two tracks. I listened to the, to the whole CD in the car when I was driving around this weekend, but I watched two tracks this evening. I watched Awaken, like I said, and I watched the Wakeman solo. And one of the things about Rick that just stuns me is... You know, here's this guy who has otherworldly physical talents. I, 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 I've never seen anyone like him. You see a lot of guitarists who can do, you know, flashy, wonderful things. I don't know that I've ever come across anyone who plays quite like Rick. There are guys who are close, but, but Rick's something special. But what really resonates with me, with, with Rick Wakeman, is the fact that he's not just a noisemaker. He is very, very melodic, and he, he understands how to apply his talents in a way that is pleasing and not just impressive, if that makes sense. Like, I love Trevor. You know I love Trevor. And Trevor's great. But Trevor likes to wank. And, you know, you get to a point and you're just like, yeah, Trevor, I get it. That's great. But it, it's not in any way, shape, or form pleasing at some point. You're just like, I don't care. I've never, well, with the exception of Tomato, I've never had that feeling with Rick Wakeman. <laughs> I'm glad we're talking about Tomato tomorrow. <laughs> So, you know, I, I just, yeah, there's there's something about Rick that just, he, he, I, I think he can be absolutely amazing and he can be spectacular, but in a way that totally fits in, you know, the, the confines and works for the song as opposed to working for Rick. Now... The last time, Paul, you had wonderful things to say about Turn of the Century, and oh. I 
I would like to maybe revisit that a little bit as well. Well, I really don't know if I can uh, capture my thoughts about turn of the century, but it is, it is at the very top of the list of my favorite yes songs. And um, again, the, the demo of this, of this song is so different from the end product. It's, it's worth listening just to, just to imagine, I wonder what happened between the demo and, you know, what they actually came up with. Um, but I love, you know, this, this song is just a, it's just a beautiful, beautiful piece of music. And, um, the, you know, the story about the artist who loses his love and, and then again, goes through this transformation of rediscovery where he like, you know, I think the, my, uh, it's just so emotional. My favorite, my favorite line from this whole thing is now Rowan, no more tears set to work his strength so transformed him realizing a form out of stone his work so absorbed him i mean it's just like this amazing like here's a guy this character who's just gone through this epic loss and you know transformation of his own self by throwing himself back into his art which in this case is sculpting and um you know whether i don't know whether um you know, he sculpts, you know, his, his uh, wife who died. And I don't know whether she comes back to life or whether he just imagines, you know, that this is her. But it's just this amazingly touching story. And as I've mentioned to you guys before, like, this is like one of those songs that, you know, I, you know, I sing it down the turnpike, blasting loud as best I can and, you know, literally will weep you know, as I, as I listen to this tune and, and, um, I think in the, in the, in the video interviews that I saw with John Anderson is he talked about wanting the story to be told also through music. So I think part of that, that evolution from the demo to the final product was, it wasn't, it was about, it wasn't just the lyrics telling the story, but he wanted these big lush musical passages and, Rick Wakeman and Steve Howe completely deliver on on those and um, and the uh, the end the end piece with the acoustic, the acoustic guitar I believe it's twelve string that comes back at the end and it is just so it's just beautiful I mean as much as I would you know I, I've as much as I've criticized Steve Howe for his uh, outrageous guitar tones as the as the as the as yes has gone through their evolution. Like, he just nails this song. It is just a beautiful piece of music. There it is. Mm. Agreed. Agreed. I have nothing quite so profound to say other than I, I fully embrace what you just said, and I can't wait to listen to it again. Yeah, you know, it's, it, it's one of those things, like I said, you know, when I was younger turn of the century was was just it was lost on me and that's you know we talked about going for the one and you know when you're younger or when i was younger going for the one was you know much more accessible and made more sense turn of the century didn't and now that we're older and wiser and understand more 
those things start to flip around a little bit, you know, and it's like, you know, going for the one doesn't satisfy in the same way because, you know, our tastes are a little bit more sophisticated maybe than they were. Yeah, well said. Mm. Which, uh, so that moves us on to, to parallels and, you know, the, the great thing about parallels and we had, we had talked about this the last time was, you know, the fact that they recorded that organ part live over the telephone lines. That still just, you know, that boggles my mind. Because if you had asked me how they did that, I would have told you, you know, they recorded, you know, most everything in the studio and then they took the... Uh, the, the recorder and they set up in the church and then they, you know, recorded Rick's tracks on top of that. But that's not the way they did it. And I just, you know, I, it has no bearing on anything, but it's just one of those things where I would, you know, you talk about these videos, Paul, I would love to have heard the conversation where someone says, you know, Rick sits down and says, you know, I'd really like to play. I'd really like to play this this pipe organ for this song. And you know, well, how are we going to do that? And this, that, and the other thing. And someone says, "Well, why don't we record it over the phone line?" Well, how would that work? You know, I, I, I <laughs> that that would be fascinating to me. And the fact that you know, here we are in 1977, and you know, apparently Switzerland has you know high fidelity phone lines. To the point where you can do this sort of thing it's just it was it's unexpected and it just adds a little bit of flavor um to the to the story and the fact that you know rick wakeman very clearly is a man who appreciates the tools of his craft you know not not every rock keyboardist, I'm betting, you know, has an appreciation for what to do with a full church pipe organ. But I get the impression, and maybe it's just me reading, you know, too much into uh, into Wakeman, but, I, you know, the fact of when he uses a church organ and how he uses a church organ, it conveys to me a certain level of understanding and respect for the instrument from from Rick. And, you know, like I said, my dad was, was a church organist. Obviously, nothing like Rick Wakeman, but, um, you know, it, pipe organs hold a, 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 a special place in my heart because of that. And so, I, you know, Rick Wakeman does it unlike anyone else. Yeah. When, Not, yeah, when we brought this up in the last one, we, we, we were fascinated by the organ at the church playing simultaneously with the band. As long as it was a few miles, I could imagine Rick getting a decent, um, you know, mix or something, you know, through a, through a telephone or headphones and then playing along. And I was guessing maybe, you know, if there was a delay coming back to the studio, 
you know, they probably had some amazing engineers who could have done the tape offset. They would have, you know, recorded it to the original track and then bounced it over to some two-track machine and bounced it back over. I mean, who, who, who knows what they did to make it work? It, it's also not... Yeah. It's it's also not the kind of performance that is, you know, so fast that you need these articulations. It, right. It, it, it's got a little bit of flexibility to it. Yeah. I would, well, I would throw out there, after watching the YouTube videos of the documenting the, the whole going for the one process, I, w I would forward that despite what we may have read on the internet, it they may have absolutely just overdubbed them um, because there are scenes in there with other members of the band overdubbing their parts and there is no way that the organ sound captured in those over in those uh, recordings are the ones from from that church so well, i think are you suggesting i hate to stomp all over our fantasy that they recorded live from miles away but I think they laid down the tracks with, you know, whatever organ they had, you know, handy. And then he uh, took a drive yeah. down. And I still, I'll, I'll accept and I'll buy into that, you know, they fed the signal via the telephone line. Sure. Um, but I think it was an overdub. And, you know, we're sitting here talking about the, the telephone line. This is 1977, right? And I just pulled up. On the wikis, as Ken says, I like it. Um, information on the touchtone telephone, and it seems that the even the touchtone telephone was not even pop made popular. It was not even really popular until the eighties. So they're doing this while everyone has one of those rotary like pulse dials, you know, like <laughs> unbelievable. All right, well, uh, keep in mind that the uh, copper was good back then. Uh, copper is generally chunky or thin these days because it's so expensive. They use the least amount that they can. And things like drain pipes have been, you know, essentially hawked for, the, for, the, for, their, for their value. But back then, copper was plentiful, and it created very good quality connections. So, you know... I mean, the, the public switch telephone network did have its its pluses when it was local and when it was working well. Yeah. There you go. And there it is. The, the um, good copper and the telecommunications industry. And, creating, you know, helping to create one of the best Yes albums. Absolutely. And, you know... Again, I, I think we've we've sort of glossed over parallels to a certain degree in that it is perhaps a little bit more, I don't even know what the word I'm looking for, obvious. It's very squire meaning? Yeah. Yes. Um, but like I said, for me, while it's, while it's very straightforward and maybe not as intricate and doesn't necessarily hold your interest as long i just i do love that organ you know just having an organ play through you know a rock song the whole time is cool 
because even even Wakeman hadn't done that prior. You know, it was always a, a section here or a part there. So I thought that was cool. Mm-hmm. We had um, we had. I think we've pretty much already talked about Wonder Stories. Is there anything additional that we need to cover with that um, in terms of this? You know, obviously, Wonder Stories, for its inclusion in the classic Yes album, you know, sort of had a wider exposure. Um, we, in the blurb, you know, we obviously it was released as a single, did very well. Um, you know, we've talked about, you know, Rick slaying it. Um, you know, is there anything else there that we need to consider? Paul, did you have a word about Chris's harmonies? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's great, Ken. Yeah, Wondrous Stories, the Chris Squire harmonies are insane. Yeah, yeah. As they are in many places on this uh, on this album, going for the one being being one of the the, the more enjoyable um backing vocals but yeah the backing vocals in wondrous stories are redunculous like you, you know some of the some of the notes that chris squire hits it's like dude what it's unreal it's really it's it's part it's it's what makes the song so much fun to like sing along to and you know over and over again because you can sing those parts and and the the echoing uh in the verses, you know, he he sort of does a an, uh, ec- the, instead of harmonizing, he does the oh, yeah. echo of the lyrics. It's it's beautiful. It's great. The end is funny. It just goes from zero to sixty. It's like oh, we're over now. Bye bye. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think now. we had a, we had a good chuckle too about Steve Howe's reckless abandon at the end of Parallels too, with his just like. <laughs> I, I don't remember, Ken. I think you you said something very funny about that. I don't know if that was another beer commercial moment or not. Oh, but it was oh well, I mean, Parallels was Steve Howe foreshadowing Trevor Rabin. It was just <laughs> inevitable that that you know the kind of the the standard scales of the progressive rock era were more and more just being replaced by the pentatonic scales of the '80s. So, I. I, I, I I think that's what drove that laugh was just realizing that, you know, the, the tone of the music was changing and, and Steve Howe was into it. And, you know, clearly Chris was into it for writing parallels. And it, 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 it was just, it was just really funny to, 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 you know, think that Steve Howe could be foreshadowing. That, that is pretty funny. But it's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it it's very it's very Trevor. It's it, it it's got some speed. It's got some just attitude in the mix. It's 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 placed just right. You know, for some reason. Someone at the console was able to give Hal some bass. I don't know how that ever transpired because <laughs> he's so brittle all the time. I think it also is that is the result of of uh, Chris Squire bringing in a song that really has no guitar part written for it, and <laughs> Steve Howe is just allowed to just go bonkers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I-, I can't say it enough. 
a guitar solo in the electric guitar era needs boosted bass. It's just what we've, <laughs> it's just what we've come to understand as listeners. That, that may be subtle or that may be glaring, but Steve Howe refused to play along for a long time. But Trevor Raven, that was his jam. So you there know. you go. There you yeah. go. Yeah, but but keep in mind, you know, and this this will get very interesting very quickly. Keep in mind where where Steve Howe is is going to go from here. Now again, let's just skip over Tormato for right now. He's going to go into drama and then into Asia and all of the things after that. So, you know. Steve was it this wasn't a, a one-time deal for him he was he was on a trajectory and that's where he was going to wind up yeah he was a hot number people liked working with him uh, and you know in those other projects he sold albums Asia in particular <laughs> stellar, you know stellar you know career choices yeah yeah interesting story and and we'll probably get into this later on but apparently john wetton is the one person in the world who didn't like working with steve howe really yeah so and, and again this is not part of the going for the one story but we'll put it here as just you know sort of a foreshadow a foreshadow if you will apparently based on what little research i've been able to do wetton left I guess in 83, maybe, it was before they recorded. He left for a little bit after the the first album, I think. Then he came back. He left again. He returned to do the third album, Astra. But apparently he said he would only come back if Steve Howe wasn't part of the band. And that's why Steve exited Asia after Alpha. Which, wow. Yeah. Wow. So once we get did he there. Cite, we'll, did he cite o overly nasal mid-range tones as his uh, reason? I, I, I do not have complete research in this area, Paul. But by the time we get there, I will I will certainly look into that for you. Uh, it, there must have been an understanding in the first two albums. Because it's kind of clear where Wetton's melodies kind of take a break and then you get the steve howe interlude you know <laughs> you know and and maybe he was just tired of giving up all that real estate and spending time in the songwriting process to appease the progressive rock god there really there's actually there's another good video that kind of covers like progressive rock overall and there's an interesting section about the formation of asia and steve and jeff deciding that they needed to do something because they basically could have just continued on with yes kind of like they're doing now right. um and then they formed asia and pretty much he says more or less that they the whole point of that band was to capitalize on the star power in the progressive world that they had and put something out that was more commercial, that would be more accessible. And, and on an unapologetically uh, very happy that it worked out. So, there good for go. them. 
And and yeah. keep in mind, you know, according to tales told from his own mouth, record company execs wanted Trevor in that band. Oh, Crazy. that would have been perfect. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's. It, it, it's no wonder. I mean, and Trevor did a good job wherever he went. Not surprised. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Okay. So, 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 so going for the one opens up. The start circling back to the album that we're on. Yeah. Going for the one kind of opens up a lot of doors. Kind of shows us the limits of the progressive rock genre, and and <laughs> kind of the. It definitely gets a little more loose and, 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 and sets the stage for the craziness that is Tormato. And then they pull it together with discipline when they finally do drama. So, so it, yeah, it, it, it's a good story. You can kind of see everything unfolding, going nuts, and then finally tightening up with uh, drama in Asia. And this is this is interesting. Uh, we'll have to look into this as well because can you bring something else in? You know, if if was there something else going on in progressive rock as a whole? And and as you were talking, I was trying to sort of mentally put together where other people were. Pink Floyd was probably doing Animals around about 1977. I want to say Genesis was probably in Trick of the Tail type region mm -hmm. i'm thinking so yeah maybe there was this sort of shift of the entire genre starting to happen that ultimately led us into you know the things that we're going to get to i don't know interesting it is interesting um i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna speed through the albums that were released in uh 77. Oh, Peter Gabriel's uh, solo debut came out that year. Perfect. Perfect. There's a guy who knew that progressive was difficult and he was able to go a little more poppy. Yeah, and you know, when I think about you know, he was like, really, you could credit him with beginning the neo-progressive movement, maybe? I don't know, because, um, I mean, he did, obviously he had some commercial success, but he didn't really do it with a, a very normal commercial formula. I don't know. I could be, I could, I could, it just could be late at night for me. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you could say both Gabriel and Genesis went in the direction of neo-progressive. Not so. Surprisingly, Barry Manilow had a release in 1977, Barry Manilow Live. Ted Nugent released Cat Scratch, Cat Scratch Fever. So there are still many examples of excellent guitar tones in 1977. Um, UFO with Lights Out. Wow. So we, okay. oh, here, this, puts it, this puts it into perspective. Uh, the soundtrack to Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope was released in really? '77. Yeah, of course, yeah. Of course yeah, it was. We, we, of all people, should have remembered that as seven years. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so yeah. I'm seeing I'm seeing the trick of the tail was seventy six. And at the end of seventy six, Wind and Wuthering. Right. So there was nothing released by Genesis in seventy seven, yeah. but they hit early in seventy eight with and then there were three. So that's you know uh, that you go. that was that was their big shift too. Yeah. Yep. yep. Yeah. Yep. You had punk happening, you had industry folks selling new wave and uh, the progressive guys were mixing it up like crazy. Here's something that is remarkable along with, along with that going for the one was released on July 7th alongside of the grand illusion by sticks. Very poppy. The grand illusion. Really? Yeah. Literally, two of my favorite albums from the '70s, right there, released on the same day. Wow! Oh, and Farewell to Kings that year as well. Mm. And in terms of uh, Farewell to Kings, there you go. That's I can't wait to get into Rush. Um, Animals was released in 1977, with The Wall coming out in 1979. So. But I don't know that. I, I think Pink Floyd had their sort of dynamic shift, obviously, for I would say Dark Side, because there's there's certainly a continuity from Dark Side through the Wall. But interesting. I just I I found that uh, you know, huh? Just a Here's, little rabbit go down. Yeah, that's fun. Here's one last little um, one last little tidbit. In November of 1977, the album Criminal Record was released by Rick Wakeman. None other than Rick Wakeman, his seventh studio album, Rick Wakeman's Criminal Record. There you go. So that then brings us to the masterpiece that is Awaken. We've, uh, we've talked about this a little bit um, already. I made the, the comment that I've never seen Awaken performed poorly. Um, my introduction was on the Union Tour when there was a big production made out of it. And like I said, so for this, you know, I, I wanted to watch that. Because obviously you have, you know, the, the five guys who made that record originally, plus the extra three sort of, you know, adding... Uh, adding support structure to it. And there were a couple of things that that struck me as I was watching that performance tonight. Rick Wakeman has obviously a certain persona about him. He's a very jovial guy. He likes to joke around. Um, you know, that whole Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing where he did basically a stand-up routine. Um the, the interviews with him in Yes Years have a certain sort of flippant attitude to it. Um, watching him, though, when he was performing Awaken, talk about a musician who is dialed in and very, very serious about what he's doing. You know, it's, it, was, it was impressive. He was, I don't know, concerned isn't the right word, 
but he was completely focused and dialed in on performing that piece of music, you know, properly. And it was, it was cool. It was very, very cool to see. And I think with the exception of Trevor and maybe Tony, I think, you know, watching sort of the reaction of the musicians on that stage, they were all into it. And John, especially, as you can imagine. But even for John, I mean, the reaction, and, and I'd never noticed it before. So I don't know if I'm hypersensitive right now or, or what, but, but even John's reaction was over the top even for John. And, you know, it was... And, and I think this is why I've never had a bad experience watching it performed live. Because I've, I've seen John Davidson do it. And John Davidson has, as I think about it, has had a similar sort of reaction. And, you know, there's there's just something about that song. And I, and I want to say that the, the point that I had made the first time we did this was, while Close to the Edge is sort of the first masterpiece and spectacular for all of its own reasons, Awaken is sort of you know, a later phase masterpiece where there's there's more understanding about how to construct a song like this and and I think there was maybe a a stronger message and there was all this other sort of ancillary things coming in. So in in some ways, you know, Awaken becomes the absolute pinnacle of what yes you know could be i think you know while close to the edge as a you know has has the the distinction of being you know also a masterpiece and perfect from front to back in in some very tangible and intangible ways i think awaken maybe ups the ante a little bit You know, it's interesting, Joe, when, as you're talking about this, um, I'm thinking about when we saw ARW in Austin and how incredible Awaken was there and the response from the crowd. And we, it, it harkens back to what we talked about with Marillion and Brave, how when we saw that show in Montreal, there was sort of almost like a coming together where like 20 years later everyone was finally on the same level with, right. with that song, right? Or with that, whole, that album. And I, and I wonder, you know, we talk about our journey and how long it kind of took us to kind of digest all of the Yes music, and we've, we've gone in different ways and, you know, different experiences have, have helped. But I guess we shouldn't really assume that, you know, if you're some dude in 1977 and you're a Yes fan and the album comes out, maybe you're not... 100% hook, line, and sinker with Awaken either. Like, maybe maybe that's, you know, we get to Union and it's been that long and everyone finally kind of arrives at that same level together and it's just kind of that. And who knows, for Yes fans, there's such a multitude of music. You know, maybe people are always coming to that realization about different songs all the time. 
and um and and you know it's it's everybody getting to that same place in a in a different way and then the other thing is that you know i i was just i just entered into my mind as you were comparing it to like close to the edge i think one of the things about awaken is that the song has such a under at least for me it has such an underpinning feeling of hope in it um the whole rediscovery uh the inspiration the the you know all of the things we talked about there is a hopeful feeling that you get when you listen to awaken and at the end of awaken you don't you you don't feel like okay this is over and i'm on to the next thing it's like you get the feeling like wow this is over and like the possibilities ahead of me are endless and and i and i i'm not that's exactly what what I thought of as you were talking about the feeling and the reaction that that people have with this song. I wonder if it's just that feeling of hope and limitless possibilities. It it, it could very well be. Uh, I mean, there there's something clearly about this song, and you know, it's it's funny as you know. Again, this weekend, and I've as I've been working on some of the other episodes for this, and. You know, so I've been thinking about Marillion as well. One of the things that that for me stands out about this particular song is, you know, sort of that, what is it, two-thirds of the way through when you sort of have that break and you get into this sort of spacey area with, you know, the the bells and the chimes and and Chris playing that, that weird, you know, thing on the guitar, whatever. We, we spent a lot of time in the Marillion episodes, certainly in the middle part from Brave through Marbles, um, maybe through Anarachnophobia, dissecting and, and tearing apart Marillion's transitional periods or pieces and how when they wanted to go from one place to another, they didn't always do it very well. Um, and you know, this section of, of Awaken very much, you know, it, it it feels the same in that, you know, you have this sort of big build up and then it, it goes quiet and you start to, you know, go somewhere else and, and you put it back together. But it's done in such a way that, and again, this is what's always amazed me even live, is that that translates so well. And in terms of how the song is constructed, even that portion, it 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 just makes sense to me. And I'm not I'm not articulating this very well at all. But hopefully you guys maybe know what I'm trying to say here. Mm, mm, mm. I came late to the awaken. Uh, Paul, you described the, you know, the consensus between the band and the fans in Austin. I would say that I, I put uh, Awaken uh, in the Squire camp more than the Howe camp with, you know, Howe taking strong songwriting duties on Close to the Edge. We talked about uh, Squire's, you know, influence on Parallels. Um, Awaken seems to be kind of the 
stripped down version of the yes prog formula and i agree it, it's very inspiring it doesn't get me into the uh the major key inspiration of of of, of close to the edge where i truly feel you know there's something down on the corner and the seasons are passing me by and it's magical <laughs> and it's beautiful. I mean, I'm not quite in that land. They don't take me quite to that place. It, it's, it, it's a very simple Zen feeling. You know, I would say Awaken is kind of like going on a long run and just getting into the zone, but it's not necessarily the most amazing beautiful sunshiny day with the most brilliant people out there it's a very good day it's very simple surroundings it's maybe um you know in the woods or or it's a rocky environment and you're ascending a hill and awaken just just bubbles inside of you and just but, but you know the other facets of yes are kind of like Yes, I'm going for a run, and there's a whole freaking circus off to the side of me. You know, I, it's not. You know, it's not quite what they were doing years previous, but it's an it's an amazing feeling nonetheless. All right, so yeah, I mean, for me, you know, going for the one was important in my discovery of yes um it it you know it sounds like for all of us perhaps it is you know our impression of the album maybe has changed a little bit over the years as we have as we have changed um but it is still you know it's an album that i can put on and enjoy and i certainly you know appreciate all that it brings and they're they're like you said paul i think i think you captured it best there's there's a certain positivity about about going for the one that for me certainly resonates and uh yeah i think it's i think it's brilliant uh two parting thoughts uh for me about uh going for the one uh, i think during this particular recording we have been interrupted at least twice, maybe three times, by poor connection. And um, we actually completely failed to record this one time prior to this. <laughs> and so, considering all of that, I think we just have to give our, a big tip of the hat to Switzerland for having <laughs> telephone technology that could actually record the keyboards, the uh, organ from a couple miles away. Um, amazing, amazing. Or so they say. Yes. That's, that's then the list. The other thing that I wanted, I forgot to mention earlier, is that one of the things, like I definitely we've talked a lot about how and why this all came together the way it did. I think that clearly the band being in Switzerland and in the situation that they were in, whatever it was, However, they did it. They it, it certainly made this album what it was. It wasn't the same old. They weren't in the same place, kind of like you were just saying, Ken. 
And the reason they were all in Switzerland is because they were all tax exiles. So they were all fleeing their native country because they didn't want to pay oppressive income taxes uh, to the United Kingdom. So if there is any good thing about excessive taxation, it's going for the one. Going for the one. There you go. Oh, Paul, didn't you have a list of notable people throughout that period and later periods known for escaping? You know what? I, I may have, but I don't. Uh, I know. I do remember. You're right. Oh, I did. How did, how did I? Oh, I did. <laughs> yes, that's right. You're right, Ken. There are, oh, my gosh. There are some great ones. David Bowie, Michael Caine. Uh, Marvin Gaye, Tom Jones, Roger Moore, yeah, um, the Rolling Stones, Cat Stevens, lots of lots of our good friends, Pink Floyd, yeah, that is awesome. We're gonna have to we're gonna put this one on the uh, on the list too here. Oh yeah, absolutely, that'll be great. What's the terminology there? Did do they call them expatriates or something? Or? No, they're they're a tax exile. Tax exile. Okay. Ken, your uh, your final thoughts on going for the one? Oh, um, I'm sold. I I, I I appreciate your insights bringing me into the the places where I didn't see any value previously. Uh, you know that I'm a big fan of the next album. And, uh, you know, specifically, <laughs> Tormato is not to be thought of as a professional recording. It just so happens to be Rick Wakeman's monitor mix of a certain impromptu performance that happened in the parking lot of an elementary school. That's all it is. <laughs> and once you know this, it makes a lot more sense. <laughs> I I. I I will keep that in mind as I prepare for the next uh, episode. Absolutely. Because that is not the way I have approached it to date. Okay. All right. Fantastic. Gentlemen, thank you so much. I'm going to uh, run downstairs and make sure we actually recorded this. Godspeed. Nice. Yep. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Progressive Palaver. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation. As always, we look forward to and welcome your feedback, your thoughts on Going for the One or anything in the Yes catalog. We are available um, at Twitter. You can tweet us at progpala. You can email us at progpala at gmail.com. We are also available on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Um, all of those at Progressive Palaver. The Progressive Palaver is available on iTunes, Google Play, presumably Stitcher, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. We look forward to uh, rounding out our discussion of the Yes Catalog in the next episode, where we will discuss Tormato and drama before taking a break and moving on to some different things. Take care. Take care.